following is a complete recording of the Belgic Confession. My name is Scott Clark. I'm president of the Heidelberg Reformation Association. The Belgic Confession was written largely by Guy de Bray during a period of persecution, and it was published in 1561 and adopted as the Confession of the Reformed Churches in the Netherlands. This recording is brought to you by the Heidelberg Reformation Association. You can reach us at 1637 East Valley Parkway, number 391, Escondido, California, 92027. Find us on the web at heidelbergreformationassociation.org. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If this recording helps you, please help us continue our work. Thanks for listening, and may the Lord bless your study of the Belgic Confession. Belgic Confession, Article 1, The Only God. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Article 2. The means by which we know God. We know Him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. Since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, His eternal power, and his divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans one twenty, all these things are enough to convict men and to leave them without excuse. Second, he makes himself known to us more openly by his holy and divine word, as much as we need in this life for his glory and for the salvation of his own. Article 3. The Written Word of God. We confess that this word of God was not sent nor delivered by the will of men, but that holy men of God spoke, being moved by the Holy Spirit, as Peter says. Afterwards, our God, cause of the special care he has for us and our salvation, commanded his servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit this revealed word to writing. He himself wrote with his own finger, the two tables of the law. Therefore, we call such writings holy and divine scriptures. Article 4. The Canonical Books. We include in the Holy Scriptures the two volumes of the Old and New Testaments. They are canonical books with which there can be no quarrel at all. In the Church of God, the list is as follows. In the Old Testament, the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the two books of Samuel, the two books of Kings, the two books of Chronicles, the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, the book of Job, the Psalms, the three books of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, the five books of the four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, the books of the twelve minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. In the New Testament, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
the Acts of the Apostles, the thirteen letters of Paul, to the Romans, the two letters to the Corinthians, to the Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the two letters to the Thessalonians, the two letters to Timothy, to Titus, Philemon, the letter to the Hebrews, the seven letters of the other apostles, one of James, two of Peter, three of John, one of Jude, and the revelation of the Apostle John. Article 5. The Authority of Scripture. We receive all these books, and these only, as holy and canonical, for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. And we believe, without a doubt, all things contained in them, not so much because the Church receives and approves them as such, but above all because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God, and also because they prove themselves to be from God. For even the blind themselves are able to see that the things predicted in them do happen. Article 6. The Difference Between Canonical and Apocryphal Books We distinguish between these holy books and the apocryphal ones, which are the third and fourth books of Esdras, the books of Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Jesus, Sirach, Baruch, what was added to the story of Esther, the song of the three children in the furnace, the story of Susanna, the story of Bel and the dragon, the prayer of Manasseh, and the two books of Maccabees. The church may certainly read these books and learn from them as far as they agree with the canonical books, but they do not have such power and virtue that one could confirm from their testimony any point of faith or of the Christian religion, much less can they detract from the authority of the other holy books. Article 7. We believe that this Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely, and that everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. For, since the entire manner of worship which God requires of us is described in it at great length, no one, even an apostle or an angel from heaven, as Paul says, ought to teach other than what the Holy Scriptures have already taught us. For, since it is forbidden to add or subtract from the Word of God, this plainly demonstrates that the teaching is perfect and complete in all respects. Therefore, we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to the divine writings. Nor may we put custom, nor the majority, nor age, nor the passage of time, or persons, nor councils, decrees, or official decisions above the truth of God, for truth is above everything else. For all human beings are liars by nature, and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts everything that does not agree with this infallible rule, as we are taught to do by the apostles when they say, Test the spirits to see if they are of God. And also, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Article 8. The Trinity. In keeping with this truth and word of God, we believe in one God who is one single essence, in whom there are three persons, really, truly, and eternally distinct, according to their incommunicable properties, namely, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
The Father is the cause, origin, and source of all things, visible as well as invisible. The Son is the Word, the wisdom, and the image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. Nevertheless, this distinction does not divide God into three, since Scripture teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each has his own subsistence, distinguished by characteristics, yet in such a way that these three persons are only one God. It is evident, then, that the Father is not the Son, and that the Son is not the Father, and that likewise the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Nevertheless, these persons, thus distinct, are neither divided nor fused or mixed together. For the Father did not take on flesh, nor did the Spirit, but only the Son. The Father was never without His Son, nor without His Holy Spirit, since all these are equal from eternity. In one and the same essence, there is neither a first nor a last, for all three are one in truth and power, in goodness and mercy. Article 9. The Scriptural Witness on the Trinity. All these things we know from the testimonies of Holy Scripture, as well as from the effects of the persons, especially from those we feel within ourselves. The testimonies of the Holy Scriptures, which teach us to believe in this Holy Trinity, are written in so many places of the Old Testament, which need not be enumerated, but only chosen with discretion. In the book of Genesis, God says, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So, God created man in his own image. Indeed, male and female, he created them. Behold, man has become like one of us. It appears from this that there is a plurality of persons within the deity. When he says, let us make man in our image, and afterwards he indicates the unity when he says, God created. It is true that he does not say here how many persons there are, but what is somewhat obscure to us in the Old Testament is very clear in the New. For when our Lord was baptized in the Jordan, the voice of the Father was heard saying, This is my dear Son. The Son was seen in the water, and the Holy Spirit appeared in the form of a dove. So, in the baptism of all believers, this form was prescribed by Christ, baptize all people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel, according to Luke, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, the mother of our Lord, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And, therefore, that Holy One, to be born of you, shall be called the Son of God. And, in another place, it says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. There are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. In all these passages we are taught fully that there are three persons in the one and only divine essence. And although this doctrine surpasses human understanding, we nevertheless believe it now through the Word, waiting to know and enjoy it fully in heaven. Furthermore, we must note the particular works and activities of 
these three persons in relation to us. Father is called our Creator by reason of His power. The Son is our Savior and Redeemer by His blood. The Holy Spirit is our Sanctifier by His living in our hearts. This doctrine of the Holy Trinity has always been maintained in the true Church from the time of the Apostles until the present against Jews, Muslims, and certain false Christians and heretics such as Marcion, Manny, Praxius, Sibelius, Paul of Samosata, Arius, and others like them, who were rightly condemned by the Holy Fathers. And so, in this matter, we willingly accept the three ecumenical creeds, the Apostles, Nicene, and Athanasian, as well as what the ancient fathers decided in agreement with them. Article 10. The Deity of Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ, according to His divine nature, is the only Son of God, eternally begotten, not made nor created, for then He would be a creature. He is one, in essence, with the Father, co-eternal, the exact image of the person of the Father, and the reflection of His glory. Being in all things like Him, He is the Son of God, not only from the time He assumed our nature, but from all eternity, as the following testimonies teach us when they are taken together. Moses says that God created the world, and John says that all things were created by the Word, which he calls God. The letter to the Hebrews says that God made the world by his Son. Paul says that God created all things by Jesus Christ, and so it must follow that he who is called God, the Word, the Son, and Jesus Christ already existed when all things were created by him. Therefore, the prophet Micah says that his origin is from ancient times, from eternity. And Hebrews says that he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. So then, he is the true eternal God, the Almighty whom we invoke, worship, and serve. Article 11. The Deity of the Holy Spirit We believe and confess also that the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son, neither made, nor created, nor begotten, but only proceeding from the two of them. In regard to order, He is the third person of the Trinity, of one and the same essence and majesty and glory with the Father and the Son. He is true and eternal God, as the Holy Scriptures teach us. Article 12. The Creation of All Things We believe that the Father created heaven and earth and all other creatures from nothing, when it seemed good to Him by His Word, that is to say, by His Son. He has given all creatures their being, form, and appearance, and their various functions for serving their Creator. Even now, He also sustains and governs them all according to His eternal providence and by His infinite power that they may serve man in order that man may serve God. He has also created the angels good that they might be His messengers and serve His elect. Some of them have fallen from the excellence in which God created them into eternal perdition and the others have persisted 
and remained in their original state by the grace of God. The devils and evil spirits are so corrupt that they are enemies of God and of everything good. They lie in wait for the church and every member of it like thieves with all their power to destroy and spoil everything by their deceptions. So then, by their own wickedness, they are condemned to everlasting damnation, daily awaiting their torments. For that reason, we detest the errors of the Sadducees, who deny that there are spirits and angels, and also the error of the Manichaeans, who say that the devils originated by themselves, being evil by nature, without having been corrupted. Article 13. The Doctrine of God's Providence We believe that this good God, after He created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to His holy will, in such a way that nothing happens in this world without His orderly arrangement. Yet God is not the author of, nor can He be charged with, the sin that occurs. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he arranges and does his work very well and justly, even when the devils and wicked men act unjustly. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility, and reverence. We adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples, so as to learn only what he shows us in his word, without going beyond those limits. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort, since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under his control, so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that he holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. For that reason, we reject the damnable error of the Epicureans, who say that God involves himself in nothing and leaves everything to chance. Article 14. The Creation and Fall of Man We believe that God created man from the dust of the earth, and made and formed him in his image and likeness, good, just, and holy, able by his own will to conform in all things to the will of God. But when he was in honor, he did not understand it and did not recognize his excellence. But he subjected himself willingly to sin and consequently to death and the curse, lending his ear to the word of the devil. For he transgressed the commandment of life, which he had received, and by his sin he separated himself from God, who was his true life, having corrupted his entire nature. So he made himself guilty 
and subject to physical and spiritual death, having become wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways. He lost his excellent gifts, which he had received from God, and retained none of them except for small traces which are enough to make him inexcusable. Moreover, all the light in us is turned to darkness, as the scripture teaches us. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not receive it. Here John calls men darkness. Therefore, we reject everything taught to the contrary concerning man's free will, since man is nothing but the slave of sin and cannot do a thing unless it is given to him from heaven. For who can boast of being able to do anything good by himself, since Christ says, No one can come to me unless my Father who sent me draws him. Who can glory in his own will when he understands that the mind of the flesh is enmity against God? Who can speak of his own knowledge in view of the fact that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God? In short, who can produce a single thought since he knows that we are not able to do a thing about ourselves, by ourselves, but that our ability is from God. And therefore, what the Apostle says ought rightly to stand fixed and firm. God works within us both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. For there is no understanding, nor will conforming to God's understanding and will, apart from Christ's work, as He teaches us when He says, Without me, you can do nothing. Article 15. The Doctrine of Original Sin. We believe that by the disobedience of Adam, original sin has been spread through the whole human race. It is a corruption of all nature, an inherited depravity, which even infects small infants in their mother's womb, and the root which produces in man every sort of sin— it is therefore so vile and enormous in God's sight that it is enough to condemn the human race, and it is not abolished or wholly uprooted even by baptism, seeing that sin constantly boils forth as though from a contaminated spring. Nevertheless, it is not imputed to God's children for their condemnation, but is forgiven by His grace and mercy not to put them to sleep, but so that the awareness of this corruption might often make believers groan as they long to be set free from the body of this death. Therefore, we reject the error of the Pelagians, who say that this sin is nothing else than a matter of imitation. Article 16. The Doctrine of Election. We believe that all Adam's descendants, having thus fallen into perdition and ruin by the sin of the first man, God showed himself to be as he is, merciful and just. He is merciful in withdrawing and saving from this perdition those whom he, in his eternal and unchangeable counsel, has elected and chosen in Jesus Christ our Lord, by his pure goodness, without any consideration of their works. He is just in leaving the others in their ruin, 
and fall, into which they plunged themselves. Article 17. The Recovery of Fallen Man. We believe that our good God, by His marvelous wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had plunged himself in this manner into both physical and spiritual death, and made himself completely miserable, set out to find him, though man, trembling all over, was fleeing from him, and he comforted him, promising to give him his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent, and to make him blessed. Article 18 of the Incarnation of Jesus Christ We confess, therefore, that God did fulfill the promise which he made to the fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets, when he sent into the world, at the time appointed by him, his only begotten and eternal Son, who took upon him the form of a servant and became like unto man, really assuming the true human nature with all its infirmities, sin excepted, being conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without the means of man, and did not only assume human nature as to the body, but also a true human soul, that he might be a real man. For, since the soul was lost as well as the body, it was necessary that he should take both upon him, to save both. Therefore we confess, in opposition to the heresy of the Anabaptists, who deny that Christ assumed human flesh of his mother, that Christ is become a partaker of the flesh and blood of the children, that he is a fruit of the loins of David after the flesh, made of the seed of David according to the flesh, a fruit of the womb of the Virgin Mary, made of a woman, a branch of David, a shoot of the root of Jesse, sprung from the tribe of Judah, descended from the Jews according to the flesh, of the seed of Abraham, since he took on him the seed of Abraham, and became like unto his brothers in all things, sin excepted, so that in truth he is our Emmanuel, that is to say, God with us. Article 19 the union and distinction of the two natures in the person of Christ. We believe that, by this conception, the person of the Son is inseparably united and connected with the human nature, so that there are not two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures united in one single essence, yet that each nature retains its own distinct properties. As then, the divine nature has always remained uncreated without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth, so also has the human nature not lost its properties, but remained a creature, having beginning of days, being a finite nature, retaining all the properties of a real body. And, though he has by his resurrection given immortality to the same, nevertheless, he has not changed the reality of his human nature, forasmuch as our salvation and resurrection also depend on the reality of his body. But these two natures are so closely united in one person that they were not separated even by his death. Therefore, that which he, when dying, commended into the hands of his father was a real human spirit departing from his body 
But in the meantime, the divine nature has always remained united with the human, even when he lay in the grave. And the deity did not cease to be in him any more than it did when he was an infant, though it did not so clearly manifest itself for a while. Wherefore, we confess that he is true God and true man, true God by his power to conquer death, and true man that he might die for us according to the infirmity of his flesh. Article 20. God has manifested his justice and mercy in Christ. We believe that God, who is perfectly merciful and just, sent his Son to assume that nature in which the disobedience was committed, to make satisfaction in the same, and to bear the punishment of sin by his most bitter passion and death. God therefore manifested his justice against his Son when he had laid our iniquities upon him, and poured forth his mercy and goodness on us who were guilty and worthy of damnation, out of mere and perfect love, giving his Son unto death for us, and raising him for our justification, that through him we might obtain immortality and life eternal. Article 21. The Satisfaction of Christ, our only High Priest, for us. We believe that Jesus Christ is ordained with an oath to be an everlasting High Priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that he presented himself in our behalf before the Father to appease his wrath by his full satisfaction, by offering himself on the tree of the cross, and pouring out his precious blood to purge away our sins, as the prophets had foretold. For it is written, He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and numbered with the transgressors, and condemned by Pontius Pilate as a malefactor, though he had first declared him innocent. Therefore he restored that which he took not away, and suffered the just for the unjust, as well in his body as in his soul, feeling the terrible punishment which our sins had merited, insomuch that his sweat became like unto drops of blood falling on the ground, he called out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And has suffered all this for the forgiveness of our sins. Wherefore we justly say with the Apostle Paul that we know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. We count all things but loss and dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose wounds we find all manner of consolation. Neither is it necessary to seek or invent any other means of being reconciled to God than this only sacrifice, once offered, by which believers are made perfect forever. This is also the reason why he was called by the angel of God, Jesus, that is to say, Savior, because he should save his people from their sins. Article 22. Our Justification Through Faith in Jesus Christ. 
We believe that to attain the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our heart an upright faith which embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits, appropriates him, and seeks nothing more besides him. For it must needs follow that either all things which are necessary to our salvation are not in Jesus Christ, or, if all things are in him, that, then, those who possess Jesus Christ through faith have complete salvation in him. Therefore, for any to assert that Christ is not sufficient, but that something more is required besides him, would be too gross a blasphemy. For, hence, it would follow that Christ was but half a Savior. Therefore, we justly say with Paul that we are justified by faith alone or by faith without works. However, to speak more clearly, we do not mean that faith itself justifies us, for it is only an instrument with which we embrace Christ our righteousness. But Jesus Christ, imputing to us all his merits and so many holy works which he has done for us and in our place, is our righteousness. And faith is an instrument that keeps us in communion with him in all his benefits, which, when they become ours, are more than sufficient to acquit us of our sins. Article 23, Wherein Our Justification Before God Consists We believe that our salvation consists in the forgiveness of our sins for Jesus Christ's sake, and that therein our righteousness before God is implied, as David and Paul teach us, declaring this to be the blessedness of man, that God imputes righteousness to him without works. The same apostle says that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we always hold fast this foundation, scribing all the glory to God, humbling ourselves before Him, and acknowledging ourselves to be such as we really are, without presuming to trust in anything in ourselves or in any merit of ours, relying and resting upon the obedience of Christ crucified alone, which becomes ours when we believe in Him. This is sufficient to cover all our iniquities and to give us confidence in approaching to God, freeing the conscience of fear, terror, and dread without following the example of our first father, Adam, who, trembling, attempted to cover himself with fig leaves. And, truly, if we should appear before God relying on ourselves or on any other creature, though ever so little, we should, alas, be consumed, and therefore every one must pray with David, O Lord, enter not into judgment with your servant, for in your sight shall no man living be justified. Article 24. Man's Sanctification and Good Works. We believe that this true faith, being wrought in man by the hearing of the Word of God and the operation of the Holy Spirit, does regenerate and make him a new man, causing him to live a new life and freeing him from the bondage of sin. Therefore, it is so far from being true that this justifying faith makes men remiss in a pious and holy life, that 
On the contrary, without it, they would never do anything out of love to God, but only out of self-love or fear of damnation. Therefore, it is impossible that this holy faith can be unfruitful in man, for we do not speak of an empty faith, but of such a faith as is called in Scripture a faith that works by love, which excites man to the practice of those works which God has commanded in his word, which works, as they proceed from the good root of faith, are good and acceptable in the sight of God, for as much as they are all sanctified by his grace, howbeit they are of no account towards our justification. For it is by faith in Christ that we are justified, even before we do good works. Otherwise, they could not be good works any more than the fruit of a tree can be good before the tree itself is good. Therefore we do good works, but not to merit by them, for what can we merit? Nay, we are beholden to God for the good works we do, and not he to us, since it is he that works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let us therefore attend to what is written. When you have done all those things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. In the meantime, we do not deny that God rewards our good works, but it is through His grace that He crowns His gifts. Moreover, though we do good works, we do not found our salvation upon them, for we can do no work but what is polluted by our flesh and also punishable. And although we could perform such works, still the remembrance of one's sin is sufficient to make God reject them. Thus, then, we would always be in doubt, tossed to and fro without any certainty, and our poor consciences would be continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. Article 25. The Fulfillment of the Law. We believe that the ceremonies and symbols of the law have ended with the coming of Christ, and that all foreshadowings have come to an end, so that the use of them ought to be abolished among Christians. Yet, the truth and substance of these things remain for us in Jesus Christ, in whom they have been fulfilled. Nevertheless, we continue to use the witness drawn from the law and the prophets to confirm us in the gospel and to regulate our lives with full integrity for the glory of God according to his will. Article 26. The Intercession of Christ. We believe that we have no access to God except through the one and only mediator and intercessor, Jesus Christ the righteous. He therefore was made man, uniting together the divine and human natures so that we human beings might have access to the divine majesty. Otherwise, we would have no access. But this mediator whom the Father appointed between himself and us, ought not to terrify us by his greatness, so that we have to look for another one, according to our fancy. For neither in heaven nor among the creatures on earth is there anyone who loves us more than Jesus Christ does. Although he was in the form of God, he nevertheless emptied himself, taking the form of a man and a servant for us. And 
He made himself completely like his brothers. Suppose we had to find another intercessor who would love us more than he who gave his life for us, even though we were his enemies. And suppose we had to find one who has prestige and power, who has as much of these as he who is seated at the right hand of the Father, and who has all power in heaven and on earth and who will be heard more readily than God's own dearly beloved Son. So then, sheer unbelief has led to the practice of dishonoring the saints instead of honoring them. That was something the saints never did nor asked for, but which, in keeping with their duty, as appears in their writings, they consistently refused. We should not plead here that we are unworthy, for it is not a question of offering our prayers on the basis of our own dignity, but only on the basis of the excellence and dignity of Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is ours by faith. Since the Apostle, for good reason, wants us to get rid of this foolish fear, or rather this unbelief, he says to us that Jesus Christ was made like his brothers in all things, that he might be a high priest who is merciful and faithful to purify the sins of the people. For since he suffered being tempted, he is also able to help those who are being tempted. And further, to encourage us more to approach him, he says, since we have a high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has entered into heaven, we maintain our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to have compassion for our weakness, but one who was tempted in all things, just as we are except for sin. Let us go then with confidence to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in order to be helped. The same apostle says that we have liberty to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Let us go then in assurance of faith. Likewise, Christ's priesthood is forever. By this, he is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him, who always lives to intercede for them. What more do we need? For Christ himself declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to my Father but by me. Why should we look for another intercessor? Since it has pleased God to give us his Son as our intercessor, let us not leave him for another, or rather, seek without ever finding. For when God gave him to us, he knew well that we were sinners. Therefore, in following the command of Christ, we call on the Heavenly Father through Christ, our only mediator, as we are taught by the Lord's Prayer, being assured that we shall obtain all we ask of the Father in his name. Article 27. The Holy Catholic Church. We believe and confess one single Catholic or universal church, a holy congregation and gathering of true believers awaiting their entire salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by his blood and sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. This church has existed from the beginning of the world and will last until the end as appears from the fact that Christ is eternal king, who cannot be without subjects. And this holy church is preserved by God against the rage of the whole world, even though for a time it may appear very small in the eyes of men, as though it were snuffed out. 
For example, during the very dangerous time of Ahab, the Lord preserved for himself 7,000 men who did not bend their knees to Baal. And so, this holy church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or certain persons, but is spread and dispersed throughout the entire world, though still joined and united in heart and will, in one and the same spirit, by the power of faith. Article 28. On the Communion of the Saints and the True Church. We believe that, since this holy assembly and congregation is the gathering of those who are saved, and there is no salvation apart from it, no one ought to withdraw from it, content to be by himself, regardless of his status or condition. But all people are obliged to join and unite with it, keeping the unity of the church by submitting to its instruction and discipline, by bending their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and by serving to build up one another according to the gifts that God has given them, members of each other in the same body. And, to preserve this unity more effectively, it is the duty of all believers, according to God's word, to separate themselves from those who do not belong to the church, in order to join this assembly wherever God has established it, even if civil authorities and royal decrees forbid and death and physical punishment result. And so, all who withdraw from the church or who do not join it, act contrary to God's ordinance. Article 29. The Marks of the True Church. We believe that we ought to discern diligently and very carefully, by the word of God, what is the true church for all sects in the world today claim for themselves the name of the church. We are not speaking here of the company of hypocrites who are mixed among the good in the church and who, nonetheless, are not part of it, even though they are physically there. But we are speaking of distinguishing the body and fellowship of the true church from all sects that call themselves the church. The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church, and no one ought to be separated from it. As for those who are of the church, we can recognize them by the distinguishing marks of Christians, namely, by faith and by their fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness. Once they have received the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ, they love the true God and their neighbors without turning to the right or left, and they crucify the flesh 
and its works. Though great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their lives, appealing constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of the Lord Jesus, in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in Him. As for the false church, it assigns more authority to itself and its ordinances than to the Word of God. It does not want to subject itself to the yoke of Christ. It does not administer the sacraments as Christ commanded in His Word. It rather adds to them, or subtracts from them, as it pleases. It bases itself on men more than on Jesus Christ. It persecutes those who live holy lives, according to the Word of God, and who rebuke it for its faults, greed, and idolatry. These two churches are easy to recognize and thus to distinguish from one another. Article 30. The Government of the Church. We believe that this true church ought to be governed according to the spiritual order that our Lord has taught us in His Word. There should be ministers or pastors to preach the Word of God and administer the sacraments. There should also be elders and deacons, along with the pastors, to make up the council of the church. By this means, true religion is preserved, true doctrine is able to take its course, and evil men are corrected spiritually and held in check, so that also the poor and all the afflicted may be helped and comforted according to their need. By this means, everything will be done well and in good order in the church, when such men are elected who are faithful and are chosen according to the rule that Paul gave to Timothy. Article 31 the officers of the church. We believe that ministers of the word of God, elders, and deacons ought to be chosen to their offices by a legitimate election of the church with prayer in the name of the Lord and in good order as the word of God teaches. So, everyone must be careful not to push himself forward improperly, but he must wait for God's call so that he may be assured of his calling, and be certain and sure that he is chosen by the Lord. As for the ministers of the word, they all have the same power and authority, no matter where they may be, since they are all servants of Jesus Christ, the only universal bishop and the only head of the church. Moreover, to keep God's holy order from being violated or despised, we say that everyone ought, as much as possible, to hold the ministers of the word and elders of the church in special esteem because of the work they do, and be at peace with them, without grumbling, quarreling, or fighting. Article 32. The Order and Discipline of the Church we also believe that although it is useful and good for those who govern the churches to establish and set up a certain order among themselves for maintaining the body of the church, they ought always to guard against deviating from what Christ, our only Master, has ordained for us. Therefore, we reject all human innovations and all laws imposed on us in our worship of God which bind and force our consciences in any way. So, we accept only what is proper to maintain harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. To that end, excommunication with all it involves, according to the Word of God, is required. Article 33. The Sacraments 
We believe that our good God, mindful of our crudeness and weakness, has ordained sacraments for us to seal his promises in us, to pledge his good will and grace toward us, and also to nourish and sustain our faith. He has added these to the word of the gospel to represent better to our external senses both what he enables us to understand by his word and what he does inwardly in our hearts, confirming in us the salvation he imparts to us for they are visible signs and seals of something internal and invisible, by means of which God works in us through the power of His Holy Spirit. They are not empty and hollow signs to fool and deceive us, for their truth is Jesus Christ, without whom they would be nothing. Moreover, we are satisfied with the number of sacraments that Christ our Master has ordained for us. There are only two the Sacrament of Baptism, and the Holy Supper of Jesus Christ. Article 34. The Sacrament of Baptism. We believe and confess that Jesus Christ, in whom the law is fulfilled, has, by his shed blood, put an end to every other shedding of blood, which anyone might do or wish to do, in order to atone or satisfy for sins. Having abolished circumcision, which was done with blood, he established in its place the sacrament of baptism. By it, we are received into God's church and set apart from all other people and alien religions, that we may be dedicated entirely to him, bearing his mark and sign. It also witnesses to us that he will be our God forever, since he is our gracious Father. Therefore, he has commanded that all those who belong to him be baptized with pure water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In this way, he signifies to us that just as water washes away the dirt of the body when it is poured on us and is also seen on the body of the baptized when it is sprinkled on him, so too the blood of Christ does the same thing internally in the soul by the Holy Spirit. It washes and cleanses from its sins and transforms us from being the children of wrath into the children of God. This does not happen by the physical water, but by the sprinkling of the precious blood of the Son of God, who is our Red Sea, through which we must pass to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh, who is the devil, and to enter the spiritual land of Canaan. So ministers, as far as their work is concerned, give us the sacraments and what is visible. But our Lord gives us what the sacrament signifies, namely the invisible gifts and graces, washing, purifying, and cleansing our souls of all filth and unrighteousness, renewing our hearts and filling them with all comfort, giving us true assurance of his fatherly goodness, clothing us with the new man and stripping off the old with all its works. For this reason, we believe that anyone who aspires to reach eternal life ought to be baptized only once without ever repeating it, for we cannot be born twice. Yet this baptism is profitable not only when the water is on us and when we receive it, but throughout our entire lives. 
For that reason, we detest the error of the Anabaptists, who are not content with a single baptism once received, and also condemn the baptism of children. We believe that our children ought to be baptized and sealed with the sign of the covenant, as little children were circumcised in Israel on the basis of the same promises made to our children. And truly, Christ has shed his blood, no less for washing the little children of believers than he did for adults. Therefore, they ought to receive the sign and sacrament of what Christ has done for them, just as the Lord commanded in the law, that by offering a lamb for them, the sacrament of the suffering and death of Christ would be granted them shortly after their birth. This was the sacrament of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, baptism does for our children what circumcision did for the Jewish people. That is why Paul calls baptism the circumcision of Christ. Article 35. The Sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We believe and confess that our Savior Jesus Christ has ordained and instituted the sacrament of the Holy Supper to nourish and sustain those who are already born again and engrafted into his family, his church. Now those who are born again have two lives in them. The one is physical and temporal, They have it from the moment of their first birth, and it is common to all. The other is spiritual and heavenly, and is given them in their second birth. It comes through the word of the gospel, in the communion of the body of Christ, and this life is common to God's elect only. Thus, to support the physical and earthly life, God has prescribed for us an appropriate earthly and material bread which is as common to all as life itself also is. But to maintain the spiritual and heavenly life that belongs to believers, he has sent a living bread that came down from heaven, namely Jesus Christ, who nourishes and maintains the spiritual life of believers when eaten, that is, when appropriated and received spiritually by faith. To represent to us this spiritual and heavenly bread, Christ has instituted an earthly and visible bread as the sacrament of his body and wine as the sacrament of his blood. He did this to testify to us that just as truly as we take and hold the sacraments in our hands and eat and drink it in our mouths, by which our life is then sustained, so truly we receive into our souls for our spiritual life the true body and blood of Christ our only Savior. We receive these by faith, which is the hand and mouth of our souls. Now it is certain that Jesus Christ did not prescribe his sacraments for us in vain, since he works in us all he represents by these holy signs. Although the manner in which he does it goes beyond our understanding and is incomprehensible to us, just as the operation of God's Spirit is hidden and incomprehensible. Yet we do not go wrong when we say that what is eaten is Christ's own natural body and what is drunk is his own blood. But the manner in which we eat it is not by the mouth, but by the Spirit, through faith. In that way, Jesus Christ remains always seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. But he never refrains on that account to communicate himself to us through faith. This banquet is a spiritual table at which Christ communicates himself to us with all his benefits. 
at that table, he makes us enjoy himself as much as the merits of his suffering and death, as he nourishes, strengthens, and comforts our poor, desolate souls by the eating of his flesh, and relieves and renews them by the drinking of his blood. Moreover, though the sacraments and the things signified are joined together, not all receive both of them. The wicked person certainly takes the sacrament to his condemnation, but he does not receive the truth of the sacrament, just as Judas and Simon the sorcerer both indeed received the sacrament, but not Christ, who was signified by it. He is communicated only to believers." Finally, with humility and reverence, we receive the Holy Sacrament in the gathering of God's people as we engage together with thanksgiving in a holy remembrance of the death of Christ our Savior, and as we thus confess our faith and Christian religion. Therefore, no one should come to this table without examining himself carefully, lest by eating this bread and drinking this cup, he eat and drink to his own judgment. In short, by the use of this holy sacrament, we are moved to a fervent love of God and our neighbors. Therefore, we reject as desecrations of the sacraments all the muddled ideas and damnable inventions that men have added and mixed in with them, and we say that we should be content with the procedure that Christ and the apostles have taught us, and speak of these things as they have spoken of them. Article 36. The Civil Government. We believe that, because of the depravity of the human race, our good God has ordained kings, princes, and civil officers. He wants the world to be governed by laws and policies so that human lawlessness may be restrained and everything may be conducted in good order among human beings. For that purpose, he has placed the sword in the hands of the government to punish evil people and protect the good. And being called in this manner to contribute to the advancement of a society that is pleasing to God, the civil rulers have the task, subject to God's law, of removing every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and to every aspect of divine worship. They should do this while completely refraining from every tendency toward exercising absolute authority and while functioning in the sphere entrusted to them with the means belonging to them. They should do it in order that the word of God may have free course, the kingdom of Jesus Christ may make progress, and every anti-Christian power may be resisted. Moreover, everyone, regardless of status, condition, or rank, must be subject to the government, and pay taxes, and hold its representatives in honor and respect, and obey them in all things that are not in conflict with God's word. Praying for them that the Lord may be willing to lead them in all their ways, and that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all piety and decency. And on this matter we denounce the Anabaptists and other anarchists, and in general all those who want to reject the authorities and civil officers, and to subvert justice by introducing common ownership of goods and corrupting the moral order that God has established among human beings. Article 37. The Last Judgment. Finally, we believe that, according to God's word, that when the time appointed by the Lord is come, which is unknown to all creatures, and the number of the elect is complete, our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven, bodily and visibly, as he ascended 
with great glory and majesty, to declare himself the judge of the living and the dead. He will burn this old world in fire and flame in order to cleanse it. Then all human creatures will appear in person before the great judge, men, women, and children, who have lived from the beginning until the end of the world. They will be summoned there by the voice of the archangel and by the sound of the divine trumpet. For all those who died before that time will be raised from the earth, their spirits being joined and united with their own bodies in which they lived, and as for those who are still alive, they will not die like the others, but will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, from corruptible to incorruptible. Then the books, that is the consciences, will be opened, and the dead will be judged according to the things they did in this world, whether good or evil. Indeed, all people will give account of the idle words they have spoken, which the world regards as only playing games, and then the secrets and hypocrisies of men will be publicly uncovered in the sight of all. Therefore, with good reason, the thought of this judgment is horrible and dreadful to wicked and evil people. But it is very pleasant and a great comfort to the righteous and elect, since their total redemption will then be accomplished. They will then receive the fruits of their labor and of the trouble they have suffered. Their innocence will be openly recognized by all, and they will see the terrible vengeance that God will bring on the evil ones who tyrannized, oppressed, and tormented them in this world. The evil ones will be convicted by the witness of their own consciences and shall be made immortal, but only to be tormented in the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In contrast, the faithful and elect will be crowned with glory and honor. The Son will confess their names before God his Father and the holy and elect angels. All tears will be wiped from their eyes. And their cause, at present condemned as heretical and evil by many judges and civil officers, will be acknowledged as the cause of the Son of God. And, as a gracious reward, the Lord will make them possess a glory such as the heart of man could never imagine. So we look forward to that great day with longing in order to enjoy fully the promises of God in Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to this recording of the Belgic Confession. Copyright Heidelberg Reformation Association. All rights reserved.